Today's episode of the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast is sponsored by The White Lotus. For your Emmy consideration, HBO presents The White Lotus, nominated for 23 Emmys, including Outstanding Drama Series and Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series. Do not miss the series that critics call, quote, a resounding triumph. The White Lotus is now streaming on Max. Hi, y'all. Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm a writer on the craft team over at IndieWire, and today we are returning to the world of The Last of Us, but not to any zombies or mass death or knife murder. Uh, Today, I got the chance to talk to director Peter Hoare about episode three of the show, Long Long Time, and his approach to the utter emotional devastation of that basically feature-length episode of television. Like a lot of fans, of The Last of Us. I have spent uh, a good deal of time with this episode, and so it was really lovely to talk to Peter about his response to it as a fan of the game. And we kind of broke down his approach to where the camera needed to be part of the momentum of that story and where and how the camera needed to step back and allow actors Murray Bartlett and especially Nick Offerman to cook. We talked about everything from embracing natural light to embracing composer Max Richter's On the Nature of Daylight. Uh, So I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with director Peter Hoare. The beginning is probably the best place to start here. At what stage did you come on to episode three of The Last of Us and kind of what were the early decisions that you were sort of getting read into? Uh, yeah, so the, it came to me via a lovely person um, called Rose Lamb. And Rose Lamb and I had worked together many years ago on a TV show called Da Vinci's Demons, which nobody saw unless you're really geeky or nerdy or just love TV because it was good fun. But it was on stars. It was early days. Uh, it was around like the, the Borgias and that sort of era of TV. It yeah. was. It was. That's exactly when it was around because... Um, the a lot of the people there were lots of different opinions in the room and I just had the best time of my life because I hadn't made a show like that before and David Goyer was the exec and David Goyer is phenomenal individual very talented very full of life full of ideas and you were constantly trying to catch them and make them you know make them work um but that's where I met Rose and Rose has been in touch with me over the last 10 years to try and get to work with me again and and it never happened until I got that email that said, oh, I don't know if you're interested, but I am working on a TV show called The Last of Us. Now, if it had been a live conversation, I would have stopped her straight away and said yes, immediately. But I had to reply using an email. But uh, I love the game and I played the game. Only the first game. I haven't played the second yet. Still not sure I'm ready. Uh, but I will have to before anything else happens. Um, yeah, so so I love the game. I re- you know, so obviously responded well to it, didn't know anything about the story at that point or which episode I would get. But then they sent me the script and I had done a show called uh, It's a Sin with with, uh, Channel 4 back in the UK and partnered with HBO Max about four gay men that grow up during the early AIDS crisis and how um, devastating that was. And that was something of a a moment for me because I, 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 you know, I've been doing this a long time, but it, it sort of put me up in a different level. People got, you know, people noticed it. People responded well to it. And uh, and so then when I read this script, I was like, oh, maybe this will make sense. Maybe there's a reason why they come for me. And um, it was one of 
the most beautiful things I've ever uh, read. It was so effortless as a piece of writing and so, so, so honed. Um, Russell T. Davis, who wrote It's a Sin and Craig Mazin are very similar in their, totally different people, but they're very similar in the way that they can manage to put you exactly where you need to be at all times. There's no slack, right, with the script. It's just, um, you know, it, it's just like you get, you get to the perfect, perfect moment in someone's life uh, at the right time and you're there just long enough to witness it and then you move on to another great moment. <clears throat> and with Last of Us, of course, it was a 20-year saga which we had to fit into one episode of TV. Um, so, so I just loved it. I took a meeting and that went well. And then I was on a plane to Calgary. It was as simple as that. Brilliant. Um, I'm curious, it's a sin is maybe my favorite thing Russell T Davies <laughs> has done. And I say this as, as a big Doctor Who fan. Um, but I'm curious, is it the writing in the scripts that's puts, putting you in the character's perspective? Is it particular manners of description like what in those what in that script was so useful in in the last of us or, or, yes. or russell's i mean it was just it was just so smartly done it was like you know he was craig was very honest from the start he said look i'm not a gay man uh, therefore i'm not going to write about that part of the, the this you know i'm not going to write something that i don't understand but he said i do understand marriage i've been in a marriage successful happy marriage for I can't remember how many years, but let's say 20 years. And he said, I know what, what people fight over and I know what silly things work you up. And I know, I know the way you come together again. I know what makes a good un union, what makes a successful marriage. And, and he said, I, so I wrote that and I just happened to write it about two men, uh, middle-aged men as that as well. That's a, another big thing that people have responded so positively to is, you know, seeing grey-haired men like myself on screen falling in love, which is quite rare. Um, so, so yeah, so he just wrote about what makes us tick really. And it, it, it's, you know, maybe that's the secret. You don't, you, you don't have to write something you don't understand. You can write adjacently to it and, you know, everyone else can pick it up and run as myself as a gay man. There was Murray, you know, we had Nick who's not, and Nick was concerned that he wouldn't be able to do his bit right. But it's like, it's not about that it's not about the labels around it it's about love it's about understanding why you love something or someone and what what matters about that moment in that scene and as i say that's what what craig did he would the best one which seems so obvious but it's only obvious now because he's done it so well but it's where they first meet they go to go upstairs they go to bed they have a very tender moment which is just kissing and the very next cut is to a door being slammed open and they're having a full-on argument, like six years later. And like that, that's marriage. That encapsulates everything because, you know, it isn't all uh, sweetness and light. It is, it's real. And this, of course, is also a very dramatic world, a very dangerous world. But yet that argument is about putting flowers around the place and making it look nice and painting the, painting the old buildings that have gone, you know, to rack and ruin. So it's a, just a marvellous ob observation about, you know, and, and that includes the line, you know, taking care of things is how we show love. And I think that, that again, is another little deft touch um, of, of Craig's. And there was just, it was just full of that. It was full of, like, just the right length of time in just the right moment. And then, you know, and we didn't change a lot of things. We, we worked very hard to get those things right with the performances uh, to get the tone just about right. But we didn't have to sort of, like, 
you know, alternate the, the flow of the story in any way. Everything just went the way it did, partly because they aged, that you can't really just suddenly pull in a scene from 20 years down the line. But, um, but some shows you have to do that with. Some shows are great, great ideas and great moments, but you have to rearrange them so that they impact the way that you need them to. But we didn't have to do that here. We just had to make those moments work on set. That was where all the work was done, really. And I mean, obviously, not forgetting my great editor, Tim Good, who's also very, you know, very attuned to what was necessary in this story to make it feel right. And that was the thing. It was a job about emotions and feelings. Yeah. Before we get to emotions and feelings, it just floors me that uh, The Last of Us built a town uh, for Murray Bartlett and Nick Offerman specifically, um, were you sort was the construction kind of already underway when you were flying to Calgary? Were you sort of involved in kind of the layout of that cul-de-sac? Uh, it was not underway. Uh, that's safe to say. So basically, my my on, on the ground colleague Eben Bolter, who's the DP, he was there. And he was uh, he was able to feed back information to me. I was a, I was aware of what was going on, and basically what was going on is everybody was being sent out to find a Massachusetts town in Calgary. And um, obviously, suffice to say, there aren't any. They, they they found a few things that they thought might work. Excuse me. There was one that um, there was a town which I can't remember the name of. So I'm sorry, everybody that lives there, but it was about four hours drive north of, of uh, Calgary. So it wasn't exactly convenient either. And it would have required a huge amount of work in order to hide things and you know open things up and make it work for us, locking down roads. We were just like, and even then it didn't really look like a Massachusetts town. So after quite a few weeks of that, and this is quite typical in television, um, after weeks and weeks of doing nothing when you could have started construction, uh, we, we eventually decided, uh, I mean, obviously, it's a lot of money, and and the people in charge of the money, they had to decide that it was the right thing to do, and they did. So we all ran into gear. I say I didn't. I just sort of looked at pictures and said, "Yeah, this is great." John Pano, who is the amazing uh, production designer, he he pulled that together in a matter of weeks with his team, and it was a huge team. But even so, it was about four or five weeks to put that together, and the roadway was the only thing that existed. So. It was a nice little, as you say, cul-de-sac of what was beautiful family houses that got flooded. So um, and thankfully nobody died that I know of, but it was literally a washout, that place, and the waters rose and every house was abandoned and then taken down. So it's a little weird, a little ghostly, but we we stepped on and we, we found, you know, we built our, our, our houses. They were all frontages, just sort of hollow, uh, except for one room and the stairs in Bill's because I did a shot which uh, comes out from, it basically follows Frank down the stairs into the sort of parlour to get his gun then out through the door. And then this is the night the night scene where he rescues uh, Bill. So that was the only thing where the interior exterior was the same. Everything else was, all other interiors were on the set. But um, yeah, John Payne had very lim- limited time to put that together. But here's a technical thing. So... As a discussion, which I wasn't part of, but was an intention of making things easier, the VFX department decided that John didn't need to put any of the roofs on the buildings to save time. And I think he was very grateful of that, to be honest. But what it meant was that we had a half-finished set where lots of blue lines around where roofs would be, 
and um, and then they added all the roofs in afterwards on every building, on every shot. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I haven't seen the final bill, so I don't know what that came to. But but that was another another part of the 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 how these things come together that nobody really knows. And of course, that's the great thing, isn't it? Nobody knows. Nobody can see it. Nobody's looking at that shot and going, oh my God, that roof's wobbling or whatever. They, they did a really brilliant job. But I think ultimately, we, we, I think as filmmakers, we like to be the person that, that doesn't have to... Because when you're, when you're working so hard not to let anyone know what you've done <laughs> and you're spending all that money, it feels like a bit of a, bit of a shame. You want to work really hard to impress and show, oh, look what all we look at all these things we've done, and you can see every single one of them. Um, but I guess that's the world of Marvel, isn't it, really? Which this isn't. Very much so, yeah. And my understanding was that you built out the window for the last shot of the episode as well, right? Yes, that's right, yeah. So so there was an ongoing conversation about the, uh, the games, uh, the game screen where, the load screen, and it just says play, I think, or something. Uh, and there's a window and a, the, it's, it's a live shot and uh, there's a, a curtain blowing. And it's very evocative, really, really evocative. There's music playing and all the rest of it. So it's stuck in all of our heads and Craig was trying to make it work as part of, our, of, of the narrative of the entire series. And in the same way, you know, he wanted to sort of hack the system at HBO so that you had to press that thing, that screen to get into each episode. And that didn't happen. Um, and so, but but he kept he he talked about it, and that's what good i you know a good idea stays in your head, and you think, right, I'm going to make it work. And so I suddenly realised that I had the perfect moment to show that image, and that was to bring all of our stories back together again at the end. So, as scripted, we were just there to watch Joel and Ellie drive away into the sunset in their new car which interestingly as well in the game that's the only real purpose for Bill's Town is you get that car you get that truck yeah whereas we managed to you know break everybody's hearts make them cry and sob out uncontrollably for, for an hour and a half so uh, but that's what you get that's what you're moving on with that and that was the that was the shot but I just thought if I had if I watched them do that through an open window at Bill and Frank's, then I could get that moment. I could, you know, just, just, it just felt like a perfect way to tie up all those stories, to bring it full circle, because that's why we were there. That car going away came from this place, came from those people and that life. And we managed to get the, the flowers, although dead, of course, they had to be, but they were there in a little pot. And we, uh, we, we had a, a wonderful charcoal drawing of, of uh, Bill but yes, we did build that. Originally, I stood out, stood above on a big ladder, just looking out of one of the windows of Bill's and going, it doesn't, something's not quite right. And then Eben and I just went, right, where would be, this is HBO, right? <laughs> where would be the best place to put this window? So we got up, we took the ladder, moved it around the town, and it was probably about 20 feet to the left of Bill's house in the middle of the two buildings with a perfect view between two other buildings, but yet that still needed work because the view looked nice, but what was there was just trees. It was just a, you know, there was no track that led away. So we said, can you build us a, uh, can you build us a, a window at this height in this position on scaffolding? And of course they said, yes. And um, so we did, and we shot that twice as well. 
we shot it one time with myself in live as part of our, our you know and then we looked at it we got back we looked at it in in, in situ with the editor and i and everybody was looking at it and it was it didn't quite work something wasn't quite there so we shot it a second time and I felt very Peter Jackson because I had an iPad beside me while the, the second unit crew were out there doing it. And I was shooting something on the main set and I was watching that and going, yep, 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 good. Um, so that was eventually the, the shot that we used. Um, but, but of course, as I said, the view wasn't actually the view of the road because there was no road. It didn't, it didn't work conveniently for the shot. So the VFX department were the final part of that puzzle and they VFXed Joel's car and the track driving away into the sunset. So it was a big undertaking of everybody to get that, but it could not have been more perfect. Yeah, no, it, it, as you say, it just sort of brings everything together. And I think for, for folks who have played the game, a lot of their feelings about the game come together in that shot with the sort of expansion of the story that is the whole of episode three. It's just so cool. Yes. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, gosh. Um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the sort of Bill and Frank's last good day. Uh, because I feel like the strawberry scene gets a lot of love and attention as well it should. It's gorgeous. But that moment and and uh, where the two get married feels like this wonderful blend of the camera getting out of the way of performance, but also sort of visual beauty being part of the emotion of that episode. I would be so curious how you how you thought about that sequence. Well, yeah, I'm glad you said that about the camera because that's very much my thing. I, I am not there. And I'm very glad, obviously, we're here talking because I have an Emmy nomination, but it isn't my... That's, that's the bonus. Um, I am not the director that wants to be noticed because I feel like that's a mistake. That's when I've gone too far. If you can see that I've done something to grab your attention, I've, I've failed. And so very much it's, it's about watching the work in front of your eyes. You've read the script, you've prepped your, your script, you've worked out the set, you've got the details right, the art direction right, which again is another phenomenal part of Last of Us is the art direction. And you've got all of these things ready to go and you wait for your actors to come to, to work and you, you sit them down and you talk it through. And then you just get back and you find yourself a position that allows what I do believe is that most privileged of things as a, as a viewer, where you think, how did I get here? How did I get to have this seat in this place right now? Because it's so personal. It's so powerful. How did I possibly get there? And I think one of my best, one of the films I am most influenced by in that respect recently is called Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is an incredible experience to, to watch because you're like, I don't know how it happened. And I don't, I forgot, that I forget their actors. It feels like a documentary and it feels like, how did they get the camera to be there at that point, at that moment and feel that emotion? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And um, so... But on our level, we would just, I, my process is to just watch the work, talk to the actors, guide it through, and then, and then find the best place to go and try and do that all very efficiently as opposed to sort of like, mm, you know, could be here, could be here, could be here. But always feel like you're, you're, you're privileged, as I say, to be able to watch it. Um, and that was part of a montage you know, the first conversation where they're, they're sat on the sofa. And again, you know, uh, I'm glad it looks beautiful because um, there are a number of occasions where we put the camera where we wouldn't have done normally because the light was in a different position. So the the very first piano scene where they are playing piano and, and it's emotional and, and Bill 
well, Frank realises who Bill actually is and says, who's the girl? And there is no girl. Um, that uh, we, if we wanted to make that look really pretty, we would have put the cameras on the other side of that line so that we were looking to the windows. And we would have had a lovely sort of sunsetty feel. But it was completely the wrong place to be. And I wanted to shoot that in a live sense. So I had three cameras running, covering the entire thing in one go, except for the shot of the hands. So that was definitely the approach there. Then when we got to the shot, the scene where Bill, uh, Frank is saying to Bill, I, I, this is my last day, or, or at least, sorry, not, not that this is my last day happens in, in the bedroom, but, but then there's a fallout from that. Yeah, when they sit down on the couch and sort of talk it through. Yeah, exactly. That, that we were shooting against the wall, up against them, and it was like, again, it could have looked much prettier if I hadn't done that, if I'd sat them somewhere else. And there was a conversation on the day to sit them on, uh, the, the piano stool or sit them around the piano and then I said it's just not right it doesn't feel comfortable enough it doesn't fe it feels it feels like I've done it on purpose and that's not how their life would be their lives need to be more relaxed and more it feels lived in and what where would you sit you'd sit there on the couch etc etc but what I did manage to get and I felt like wasn't too far was to have the moment where they propose and put the rings on on that bench so they were both and they were both sat by the piano, but with the sunlight behind them, and it looked beautiful and glorious. Of course, there's always the ideas of, uh, you know, the golden hour, meaning, you know, the, that sort of last stretch of your life before the sun goes down. And so it, it was just perfect. Everything really worked in that way together. We also shot during the beginning of fall, and therefore there were real leaves falling around us and on the on the ground. And when... Uh, Bill takes Frank over to the shop to get their, their, their gear. There's, there's leaves blowing around. So you feel like this sort of like, you know, this process of ageing, this sort of natural thing seems to be happening all around us. Um, and then the final piece, which I had wanted to do on its sin, but wasn't, I didn't get to do it, um, uh, was using this piece of music from Max Richter. On the Nature of Daylight. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, well, it's something that struck me since I watched, I mean, it's been around a while, but I watched Arrival and was so, so blown away by its presence in the scene. And the story there, as I understand it, is, and they had Jonas Jonasson, who is just sadly no longer with us, but just a genius in terms of being able to evoke emotion. And they all, they, they had, On the Nature of Daylight as temp, and they all agreed after a while that there was no improvement on that. You couldn't beat it. It was just doing so much. It gives me goosebumps. I'm having them now just thinking about it because it does allow for a feeling of melancholy, but a feeling of positivity all at the same time. There's a sort of lifting. It, it, it gives you comfort, but it makes you realise the pain. And I think that could not have been more perfect. And... So, and again, I put it on my temp score and just said, you know, as you do, like, look, everybody, this is really great. And thinking that HBO would say, yeah, but we, we're not going to do that. And they did. And I think, again, it's all about the team working together as, as the team. And they could see what it did, how it felt. And it's, you know, I, I didn't set out to make people cry every moment, but it feels like it did happen. <laughs> and of course... I, I watched a video of somebody watching my show and reacting live to it. 
and I heard I heard them say, "Oh no, not this piece of music! No, I can't! I can't handle it! No!" And uh, and I was like, "Oops, maybe I went too far." No, no, no. On the nature of daylight, playing while you're looking at sort of uh, Frank's art studio and the the paint and the easels that'll be there forever, like that's exactly the right level of poignant. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think you need to make the moment feel like uh, it needs to be earned. I think you need to know you can't throw a piece of music like that in without having worked hard for it. And I think we were so in love with them at that point. We so cared about them both. We'd been there, even though it was 40 minutes, we felt like we'd been with them for those whole 20 years. Such wonderful, warm performances, such care and attention. And I think that that all of those things together allowed for that to happen in, in a really like... You know, the inevitability at the end of one's life is something that doesn't necessarily make for good drama because <laughs> people are like, oh, no, please, I want happy. I want something else. But what, what, what happened as a part of all of this is a story where people got to choose their life. They got to live the life the way they wanted to, to live it and end it the way they wanted to end it. And I just think there's something very, very powerful in that. And, uh, you know, the fact that we talked about late blooming gay relationships, middle-aged gay relationships, you, you know, labels at all, because I've had many conversations about, with people who say like, oh, why is, why is Bill gay? And I'm like, well, you, you tell me why you think he's gay, because Bill's Bill, okay? And Frank's Frank. I think in the real world, Frank probably went to some bars and he's had a few, of, you know, maybe if Grinder was a thing, he'd have been on that. But, but, but Bill's Bill, and Bill lived a very, very sheltered life. His mother dominated him. It's quite clear about that. And when she died, he's, he just became more and more insular. I don't think I see Bill as necessarily gay. I just see that Bill had no chance in his life to really feel who he was, understand who he was. And then on that amazing day, he meets a man who appeals to him in the way that he always hoped a man would. And and that is that. So it's, it's, it's not about gay, straight. It's not about, that's why... It's great to have the conversation because it's not about the binary. It's about two people meeting at a certain point in the right point of their lives that they could never have foreseen and they find each other. And that's just, that's love. That's what's beautiful about it. Yeah, it's just this profoundly hopeful antidote to the, the rest of the show, honestly, mm. that, that like it takes, these two people probably would never have interacted if not for an apocalypse. And instead they found, you know, this incredible rich and fulfilling life together. I'm curious, you said something earlier of like, because the episode is jumping through time, you can't sort of sort out scenes or, you know, swap them in and out quite so much. At what point, either in in, in sort of shooting or post, did it really become clear that this was going to be like a 70 minute episode? <laughs> like, was, was there ever was there ever a version of it that you tried to cut for like under an hour? Well, um, so... Again, if anyone doesn't know this, then basically how American TV works, I'm a Brit, as you may know, but uh, as American TV works is you, you have a very short time in the edit to, to put your version forward. And on this case, occasion, it was five days. I had a great editor who'd already been working hard on it. We'd had conversations along the way about certain things. He'd given me a few pointers here and there. We'd picked up a few pieces, but it's only five days. And I think when I first, I, I do forget the exact there's been rumours of a 90-minute version. I'm not sure that ever existed. But I certainly had to work with something that was nearly between 75 and 80 minutes. That was the cut that was given to me. And that's basically an editor's cut 
is everything in the script, in script order. And, and, and it plays well. It has music, it has VFX, temp, temp VFX. But it, it, it's basically that, you know, it, it's, it's everything. And then we decide where to take it from there. And my first reaction was, I'm going to get fired because it's so long. And I have a tendency to spread with my work. It, it tends to be longer. Um, so I thought, God, and it was a 62-page script. It wasn't particularly long. And so we said, right, let's have a look. Because I said, look, you know, there's also nothing worse than, than being indulgent in those sorts of things. And have we been indulgent? Have, have we taken too much of our audience's time for this? And we found, honestly, that we hadn't. But if there was a clever little cut that, and this will not be a director's cut because I don't want to do it, but if there was a cut that seemed to make sense uh, in terms of bringing the time down that, that I thought was the thing I was supposed to do. Um, it was that you could have Frank and Bill walking down the corridor to their room. And then the next shot could be the full 180 degree reverse of that, which is the door then opening. And it's Joel and um, and Ellie. And that felt like a, a, that felt like, so what you'd lose is all of the walk into the town, Joel's suspicions being arisen, like, oh my God, something's not right because the things are dying. He knows something's up, he doesn't know what. And then they see all kinds of things and then they walk into the house. Ellie, and, and actually it's it's not a lot, really. No, but you get Ellie fiddling around and all all, all the things that you need for where she's at at that moment, absolutely. There's a lot of things about that. And I think what she doesn't see very often, and certainly at that point in that relationship, she hasn't seen him concerned. He has been a bit grouchy and he has been, um, you know, taken charge and just said, do what I tell you and when I tell you. But all of a sudden something's changed in him. And it's a concern because he liked Bill. He, he was a, you know, that letter, which is another beautiful, beautiful moment, which doesn't get mentioned a lot. But the letter that Frank, sorry, that Bill writes, that Ellie reads, and the way she reads it, the tenderness at which she suddenly reads it, and she's like, she realizes what it all means, is so beautiful. Um, but, but yeah, so that was the only cut that we made. We trimmed a few things here and there, which inevitably doesn't take any real duration down. But then I had a version which was seventy-two minutes, and I thought, okay, ten minutes longer than perhaps it should be. But we, me and Tim, both agreed that it was great. So let's just wait for the other people let's wait for Craig to decide what he wants to do and I had a conversation with Craig many many weeks later about a few additional shots in the the raid scene which were were great idea and we we both discussed that together and they got shot but that was it really they and then he said I've put it all back <laughs> I've uh, <laughs> I've reinstated it and it's all still there and so yeah uh, so the final duration is 75 minutes I think now which is pretty much what it was yeah 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 and and of course what I didn't also know is that at that point episodes one and two were planning to be amalgamated into what is now episode one so my episode was originally episode four and I think as well from a writing perspective doing an episode like this like long long time is less of a risk mid-season because people are suddenly they've got themselves comfortable they know that you're going to deliver the show that, that they want but here's an episode that does things differently but now we were episode three so it felt like even more bold to, to do that and episode one was 85 minutes so this is a this is a very different kind of show this is like two features in the first three episodes of the show um 
and it worked. <laughs> Everybody loved it. So, yeah, just goes to show there are no rules. You do the thing that feels right. You commit to the show. You commit to the story that feels right, and everybody will will go with it as well. And and going back to what you said before, I mean, one of the reasons this show is so good at what it does is because it asks the question, why? Why survive? I think survival stories are often very transfixed in the process of, of survival, you know, the means of survival. How on earth would we do it? But not why would we do it? And I think that is what Last of Us does so beautifully. <clears throat> it's like there has to be a reason for this survival. And I think there are many moments actually that are along the way where people give up. And I think if you think about all of the times people are killed in The Last of Us, if you think about the fact that there might be a moment on that face where they're relieved because they can go, they can, they can leave that horror behind them. That's something you don't see very often in those stories in, in horror stories generally. I mean, it's not purely horror, but the idea that it's a relief to go to die because the world is so horrific. I think that's something that is, is, is an interesting take on these types of shows and an interesting take in, in our present, you know, like, it, it sounds very brutal to say, but like, you know, life is tough for lots of people right now. And I think and finding, you know, finding stories that can be sort of hopeful, but yet not shy from from the truth, I think is really good. No, I mean, you need it to then get to the way that like the the incredible little laugh that Nick Offerman has when he's eating the strawberry. Like yeah. those two things are part of the same world and you need both of them for the world to feel real I think yeah and I think I think that's you know that that strawberry scene which I know you said has, has been mentioned a lot but that was again one of those moments we decided to shoot as live because the sun was going down we wanted it to look beautiful aesthetically that was a good reason to do it as in being aesthetic was a good thing to do in that point and actually we shot a lot in natural light even the interiors were shot as were as they were lit naturally by sun by you know there weren't there were candles and things. There was a little bit of electric light, but it didn't really provide an awful lot. So we we just thought that was the right thing to do. And it just was a beautiful thing. Again, three cameras running in that wonderful, probably only 15 minute window of availability. I can't remember which take it was that he giggled. It could well have been the first because he was, they were so, the whole crew at that point almost wanted to hug each other because it was so beautiful having these moments with Bill and Frank. It really was. Was there something in in the process of working on this episode that uh, you learned that you would like to carry on to future work or um, that you think is going to really stay with you and other stuff that you make? Oh, um, I, I think I think one answer to that question is that I've learned that what I do do isn't bad. And I know who. Uh, I should have probably learned that by now, having done it for well, been in the industry for 30 years. But I, I think it's a shame that so many creative people don't necessarily feel the confidence of that creativity. And I, I know I certainly didn't. And actually, from It's a Sin, from that to this as well, have made me realise that I have, uh, I'm pretty good at it. And I'm, and I, but I think that sounds so arrogant and I hated saying it even when I said it. But, but I think it's, it's about, we're all different as filmmakers. We all see different stories and different things and, I definitely feel that being able to tell queer stories has become something that really matters to me. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to necessarily be the go-to queer director, but I do love being able to tell those stories from a, a perspective, which I think is 
powerful, but also believable, but real and authentic. Um, you know, I'm not saying that anybody else can't do that, but I do think that there's something in it if, 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 if it's worked twice now so far. And, and it's just an understanding of, of, of the story. I just think let myself believe in myself. You know, <laughs> I think give, give myself a break. Um, we, we spend a long time uh, beating ourselves up about the things we didn't do right. And actually, I just think, you know, I love what I do. I really love what I do. I love every minute of it and always have. So I think a little bit of that, plus telling the right stories that mean something to you, if you're lucky enough to make those choices, um, I think that's the perfect, the perfect uh, recipe. I think that's a perfect place to end. Peter Hoare, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sarah. I've been lovely. Thank you.